Hello and welcome to day one of the Winktown Book Festival 2020. I'm Peggy Hughes. We'll be releasing a podcast today during the festival, from today, Thursday 24th September, until Sunday 4th October. There's lots to look forward to, including an international edition featuring a tie-in with our friends from Featherston, our sister book town in New Zealand. A special episode marking Scotland's year of coasts and waters, literary celebrations of James Hogg and Oscar Wilde, guest episodes with shared reading charity Open Book Reading, and a whole lot more. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And of course, please do join us online on our YouTube channel and on our website, wigtownbookfestival.com, for our action-packed schedule of online events. Tomorrow is the first of our daily chat shows at 9.30am with the phenomenal bookshop band featuring authors Olga Wojcic and Will Ashen as well as our resident sound artist Stuart French Bloke McLean. Other Friday highlights include Alistair Campbell, Judo Dawson, Patrick Laurie, Kevin Barry, Kirsten Idis and Mark O'Connell and that's only the first full day. But to the matter in hand, we thought we'd kick off the podcasts in true style with our first event of the online festival, which featured none other than Wigtown's very own Sean Bithell, marvellously chaired by the wonderful Lee Randall. Usually you'll find these events on our YouTube channel and on our website, but just for today, we're featuring the entire event in its audio-only glory too. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the opening night of the Wigtown Book Festival 2020 in its digital format. I'm Lee Randall and I'm delighted both to be here in my home from home, Wigtown, and to be talking with my friend Sean Bithell, who owns the bookshop. Before we get started, a bit of the housekeeping. You um, surely know by now that there are buttons everywhere on the website where you can buy books, where you can make donations to help keep events like this coming. We really hope, if you're able to, that you'll support both our authors and our festival. And we do appreciate every bit of help we get from you. You probably know that many people have visited the bookshop in person. They've walked amid its more than mile of shelving. They've cozied up before the open fire. They've ducked under the flying skeleton. And they've marveled at the Kindle mounted like a trophy. But many, many more have visited the shop from the comfort of their homes around the world, not unlike the audience is doing tonight. And they visited via Sean's two international bestsellers, The Diary of a Bookseller and Confessions of a Bookseller. These funny, poignant books take us through two years in the life of the bookshop and the town, which found a new lease in life as Scotland's national book town. Now, the newest book, which I cannot hold it up, Sean, I can't help noticing that it's exactly the right size for a stocking stuffer, and <laughs> Christmas is around the corner. It is called Seven Kinds of People You Find in Bookshops. Um, in it, Sean affectionately nibbles the hands that feed him, describing the sorts of customers who cross his threshold. I was going to say each day, but we know perfectly well that not every day brings a customer. No, sadly not. Exactly. So before we go into these seven kinds of shoppers, uh, let's talk about the pandemic. Let's talk about the elephant that's not just in the room, but sitting on all of our heads. You were shut for some of it. Uh, yes, we closed, um, I think, two days before we were obliged to close. Uh, I just thought this is going to happen anyway, so we might as well close. And in a, a rare display of... <laughs> 
responsibility. I thought actually closing the shop should probably reduce the number of people coming to the town um, and consequently hopefully reduce the, the chance of a, an outbreak. So, yeah, the, the, I was um, yeah, uncharacteristically responsible. But, yeah, we, we closed for, I think, 116 days. And normally uh, the shop's open six days a week. So the only time that it's closed for more than one day in any week is at Christmas um, uh, and we close for Christmas Day and Boxing Day and then sometimes a, there's a Sunday that coincides so mm-hmm. um, but yeah other than that for 40 years the shop has been open six days a week uh, and it was uh, we reopened on the 16th of July I think um, and we I, 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 I wait I was going to wait until uh, self-catering and hotels and B&Bs could reopen because I thought, well, there's, there's no point in opening before then because we're so tourist-dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, yeah, I decided to open a week earlier and uh, I, it, it was a, a very, very strange experience seeing my first customer for nearly a quarter of a year. Um, and he was a guy who'd driven down from air he was completely charming and I I opened the, the shop at nine and he appeared at about quarter past ten and before then obviously there hadn't been any other customers and I was thinking god I might, I might as well just close the doors again uh, and he appeared and it was it, it was like a sort of I don't know, like a ray of sunshine which is something I would never use to describe my customers yeah. <laughs> um, but he was so charming, and he spent about eighty pounds. And I thought, right, okay, we're we're back in business. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a very odd time, and I think it was obviously it's been the same for most people. But um, yeah, being forced to close the business for for that long was uh, initially there was a sort of sense of euphoria about it because you you just think oh, I don't have to deal with customers anymore and. Um, you know, you, you have time to yourself. I, and obviously as well, you know, we had the most outstandingly beautiful spell of weather. So mm. I got stuck into garden jobs and things and it was it was just great. It was like being on holiday, but it it did start to wear thin fairly quickly. That must have surprised you, given that you've built your, your brand on being a curmudgeon. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it did surprise me. Um, and the the other thing that was interesting was um, you know, the only shop that I went to for the entire lockdown was the co-op in Wigtown. And normally in the in the co-op, you, you do see lots of different faces and people you don't recognise. But suddenly there was, it was literally only people you knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was quite strange. And I think that's probably... A, a sort of rural thing. I don't imagine if you, you know, if you went to a supermarket in Edinburgh, you'd just see faces you recognised. But um, yeah, and it was quite nice. You know, you end up talking to people in the queue outside, and actually, you, you sort of connect to people a bit better. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it was. There were good and bad elements to to the whole lockdown. You, you tweeted um, one day, I can't remember, it was a few weeks ago, 
you tweeted that during uh, the lockdown and subsequently, you sold a tremendous amount of Agatha Christie books and you were asking other booksellers if they'd noticed um, a change in, in a change in people's reading patterns. And it's very, very true because I am hooked into the crime community um, that a lot crime sales. Not which the mafia. Are, not that crime community, <laughs> crime writing community. Yeah, I always forget that you have to specify. Um, at least that's the story I'm telling. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> a lot of, I mean, crime's doing really, really well now, which seems counterintuitive. It is. Um, and one of the, uh, the things that I, I got loads of emails from people saying, oh, you must be so glad of the internet during lockdown to keep business going. But I decided to stop selling online oh. about a year ago, mm -hmm. which with hindsight may have been quite a considerable mistake. Um, but I, I just had enough of it. I, there's, there's something about selling online. It's so impersonal um, and pe people have the opportunity to be really offensive and really rude because there's that cloak of anonymity. And I, so I just thought, right, that's it. I'm not going to sell online anymore. And then lockdown happened, <laughs> and that was it, cutting my own throat. Um, but as soon as we reopened, um, it's I mean, business, I have to say, has never been so good since we reopened. It's been phenomenal, and it's obviously partly a consequence of uh, people being reluctant to travel abroad and staying within the UK. Uh, and... Um, but it, it's been phenomenal, and uh, but yes, one of my probably I would say by far my best-selling author since lockdown was lifted and we started having people in the shop again is Agatha Christie, and by sheer coincidence, the first book deal that I went out when I was I was buying books again mm -hmm. uh, was at a house near Lockerbie, uh, and. Um, there was a massive Agatha Christie collection, so and I just thought, well, I'll, I'll take that, uh, and the whole lot's gone now already. Really? Yeah, I mean, it was within a week; it was almost all gone. So Agatha Christie, I don't know whether it's the the fact that there's a sort of cosy warmth about her writing, and that um, there's a there's always a, a resolution at the end, um, and I think during a period of uncertainty, people sort of crave that. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of, when we don't know where we're going, which is where we appear to be at the moment, um, there doesn't appear to be an obvious end. Uh, I think people like reading books where there is a, a sort of neatly resolved story. So that, I think that's probably why Agatha Christie sold so well. And she's a great writer as well. Well, so. she is that. Um, but I was just, I was wondering, you know, so I'm wondering if during other periods of, of uh, sort of group turmoil, you have also noticed changes in book buying habits. Um, I'm thinking the 2014 referendum or Brexit two years later. Um, I, it may not affect you as much being in the used book trade, but I, it's worth, I thought it was worth asking. Uh, yeah, I don't... I I haven't noticed any patterns in the past, but then I haven't really been looking for them. and. Mm -hmm. um, and I think things like the referendum, I think people's buying habits probably stayed pretty much the same as they were before that. Um, but in terms of uh, the books that are being written and published, I, I think that's 
you probably know more about this than I do, but I think there's going to be a dramatic change in um, in what comes out uh, in the in the next few months and what's already being published. Mm. Um, so, Jenny, my wonderful agent, um, was down just after lockdown. She decided to come and she and her husband came down for a visit and uh, she told me that one of her friends, who's a, another literary agent, um, had two manuscripts submitted on the same day, both called, during lockdown, both called virus exclamation mark. <laughs> so I think it's probably lots of people who uh, have always thought about writing a book have probably during lockdown actually had the opportunity to do it. Um, and I, I just hope they're not all called virus exclamation mark. No, the others will be, you know, how to kill my spouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our children? Oh, they're buried in the back garden. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Um, yeah. How, how to uh, find the, the cheapest case of wine online and, exactly. uh, and things like that. So. Oh, I have some tips on that. I'll tell you later. <laughs> um, in the preface to the book, you describe some random acts of kindness that kind of both startled and warmed the cockles of your heart. Um, can you tell the audience what kinds of things happened? There were people who deliberately overpaid, and there were other things. Yeah, so um, I had, I think the first one was a, a customer who came in uh, and bought a few books, and I think the total <coughs> was about £12, and he gave me a £20 note, uh, and I was getting the change out of the till, and he said, no, just, <coughs> just keep it, because... Um, I, you know, I really, I know how difficult this time must have been for you, and I just want to make sure that you're still here next time I come to visit. So um, that was the first one, and it was, you know, it was, I'm going to sound a bit soppy about this, but it was quite heartwarming. Mm -hmm. um, and the second one was, uh, I, in fact, I wrote to the, the person who did this yesterday. Um, uh, I got... Uh, a letter from uh, from someone in Monaco uh, which basically said that she'd read uh, an article, I think it was in Time magazine by Margaret Atwood, which said that um, Margaret Atwood was saying, this is a really difficult time for small businesses, so you know, whatever you can do to keep them going I'm sure they'd really appreciate it. Um, and she sent me a cheque for complete stranger, never heard of her, don't know anything about her, um, sent me a cheque for £300 saying, I hope this helps. Um, did, did she explain why? Had she yeah, read well, the she, books? Yeah, had she well, no, I don't think she had read the books, but she she must have just Googled and just found my website or something. Um, so uh, she's a crime fiction reader, so uh, I parceled up a load of crime fiction and sent it out to her um, as a thank you. Um, but we're still in touch and, you know, I think those sort of strange bonds that you would never have experienced had it not been for lockdown, um, you know, I, I just hope they last and I, you know, mm -hmm. hopefully one day she'll visit the shop and I can thank her in person. But yeah, those, I, there are things that I just didn't expect you kind of almost expect in a situation like that that it's going to bring out the most selfish element in people. Um, whereas, in fact, it does in some people, obviously, and, you know, try buying 
new role in the co-op a, a month before <laughs> lockdown. Um, but uh, it also brings out a really generous side in people. So it's been it's been a very positive experience. Well, that's that's lovely. So I'm going to have to change my tone here. It's too, yeah, well, don't <laughs> too worry. Nice. We'll, get, we'll get snarky. <laughs> there are seven types that you've identified. Um, and I'm not going to try to say them in Latin because I was at university the last time I did any Latin. And that's, I mean, I think Victoria was still on the throne. <laughs> I can't remember how to pronounce anything. Um, one of the um, seven types is called the expert. And we will find ways to mock the expert. But before we mock the expert, could you tell us a story or more than one story about when, I mean, there's a fine line between being a pedant and being an expert. And you've been lucky enough to have some people come in and actually tell you stuff that was cool that you didn't know. Yeah, uh, I think there's a, the, the, I think you can almost divide the expert into two types. Uh, one of which is the autodidact, the, the self-taught expert who um, is very generally very keen to almost humiliate you for not knowing as much as they do about a particular subject. Um, and then the, the other side of that is people who just have a general interest um, or a specific interest. And um, one of them... Um, was, the yeah, so this book by Patricia Wentworth, uh, I bought from a house in Dumfries just before lockdown, um, and I was going through all the books, and I thought, well, this is pretty unprepossessing paperback. Um, it's probably not worth anything. And uh, I was looking at it, and the, the woman whose house I was in uh, scampered over and said, oh, that's, that's really interesting, that book, because um, I don't know if anybody noticed from the cover, it's um, a I'll box of... folding it up. It's a box of chocolates with a, a syringe on it, and it's obviously a murder... Um, it's crime It'll fiction. Be a poisoning. Poison. Um, so uh, she told me that it's really, really scarce because uh, it was withdrawn because the chocolate manufacturer, who's named on the front cover, um, objected to being associated with uh, a poison. Um, so they complained to the publisher, the publisher withdrew it. So that is actually a very scarce book. Uh, and so that kind of expert I really love because there's there's no sense of um, lording over you with their knowledge. It's sharing information. Um, and uh, as a bookseller, you, you know, you have... There is, there's so much out there that you will never know... Um, about books and publishers and authors. Uh, so actually, somebody telling you something like that is really useful because it, it, it can give you the sort of veneer of knowing what you're talking about when you come across it another time. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the other one, um, the other sort of experience that I had with a customer who um, really sort of benefited my knowledge was... Uh, a guy, and I've written about it a couple of times, so it's, apologies if you've already heard this or read it. Um, but there was a, 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 I can't remember what period he was writing, in about, about 1770, I think, um, a draftsman called Francis Gross uh, was decided to travel around Scotland. He was obviously fairly wealthy and um, sketch 
images of, sort of all the ruined, ancient ruined buildings. Um, so it's the book's called Antiquities of Scotland, and I had it's two volumes, and I had a, a set of it, and a customer came down from I think it was Edinburgh, um, and it, he somehow he'd heard that I had this set. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not particularly scarce, but it's this was in very very good condition, uh, and he came down and he bought it, I think it was £300, and after he'd paid, he said that, you know, this is a really, really significant book for um, collectors of Robert Burns, because uh, Gross and Burns met in a house in Dumfriesshire. Um, I can't remember what it was, where it was, but, um, and they had supper together and obviously drank too much, and Burns, being a great advocate for Alloway and Ayrshire, um, knew that Gross was writing this book and said, you've got to feature Alloway Kirk. Um, and uh, so Gross said, all right, okay, that's fine. I'll I'll go to Alloway, I'll sketch it and I'll fill it in, but you've got to provide the text for it. So uh, um, Burns duly disappeared, wrote something, sent it to Gross and uh, Gross read it and said, "This is rubbish." <laughs> Which you have to have uh, pretty tough kahunas to say that to Robert Burns, I'd imagine. So he sent it back to Burns and said, um, "Can you uh, write something a bit more supernatural?" And so Burns wrote Tamashanter, and although it did appear in print in in a newspaper, I think before that, it's the first book that actually features the entire text of Tamashanta, and it's all thanks to Francis Gross. So um, these these things are, they're like little nuggets of yeah. gold for a bookseller, knowing knowing these things. And I would never have known about that. I would have probably never read about it. But when a customer tells you about it, yeah. it's, um, yeah, it saves you the effort, really. <laughs> That's brilliant. There's also a story in your book that spoke to me because I... Um, I took an entire semester of um, in university in Arthurian myth. I love the Arthurian myths. And you tell a story in your book about a co- uh, an edition of the Mort d'Arthur um, yeah. with Aubrey Beardsley. I mean, by the time I got into that story, I was clutching not just my pearls, my heart. I was sobbing. Can you tell that story? It's such a an upsetting story. It's upsetting, but it's also... It's, I suppose that's it, just how business works. Um, so I had a, a customer came in with a few boxes of books, excuse me, uh, that he was selling that had obviously come from a stately home. Um, and, the, you know, it was a really nice collection of books. And in amongst it was a, a two-volume set of Beardsley's Mort D'Arthur. Uh, and um, I didn't know what it was worth. And it's, they were both signed by Beardsley, both um, both volumes. Uh, and um, I, I can't remember what I offered the guy, but he was happy with it, and he disappeared. Um, and normally in that situation, I would do a bit of research, and you know, if the book turned out to be worth considerably more than I'd paid, I would get back. I always keep contact details for customers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have got back to him and... Uh, you know, sorted it out and made sure that he got a fair price for it. Um, 
but there was a, an expert who came into the shop um, who's a really nice guy, regular customer, um, and spotted it before I'd had a chance to do any research on it and um, made me an offer, which I think was about, I think it was £800. Anyway, I was quite happy with that, uh, and I thought, well, you know, he's probably got a reasonable bargain. Anyway, I bumped into him about six months later uh, in a, a book festival in Carlisle, and he said, um, oh, you remember that two-volume set of beards that you sold me? Um, I, I was like, yeah, yeah. Uh, he said, I got 19,000 for an auction in London. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't annoyed for my own sake, because, um, but I was annoyed for the, the person who'd sold it to me, because I, I would have, if I'd known that it was worth that much. And obviously auctions are different. You know, you, mm -hmm. you just need two people who are interested in the same thing. It can go from being worth a thousand pounds to 20,000, you know, in a matter of minutes. Um, but uh, yeah, I just felt bad for the guy I'd bought it from because I felt like I ought to have, I ought to have paid him more, but obviously I couldn't. Um, mm. But yeah, that's, uh, things like that happen and there's, as I mentioned in the book, it's, there's always an element of uh, caveat emptor, also caveat vendor. So, you know, if you're selling something, if you're buying something, you might end up being shortchanged. But also if you're selling something, you, you have to, it comes with the territory. So um, although it did annoy me, I do accept that the guy did nothing wrong. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Now, were you going to read... Um, us a little section from the book. Uh, or would you please read it? <laughs> um, I will. I have to swap glasses because I'm so old now. Anything you like. I need two pairs of specs. Uh, so I haven't rehearsed this, so I apologise if. But you did I write it. So. I did write it, but that doesn't mean anything. Um, <laughs> so one of the categories, uh, one of the types of customers is um, uh, the bearded pensioner. Uh, and uh, so I'll just read a little bit of that and I would just like to mention my friend uh, Jan who uh, was a slight inspiration for this so uh, one, of the, one of the things that if you live in Galloway uh, particularly at the moment actually because uh, all the B&Bs and hotels and everything are, are full so anybody with a motorhome or a caravan seems to descend on the area and uh, um, I suppose because of COVID, it's it's safe for people to feel like they're more self-contained. But anyway, bearded pensioner, quite a lot of them appear in caravans uh, and camper vans. So um, I'll read a little bit of this. Uh, so the this type uh, includes both males and females, although it tends to be dominated by males by a whisker. Apologies for that. Um, almost everyone in this group travels the country in a motorhome or a caravan, like a swarm of geriatric locusts, complaining about everything and never buying anything. The top travelling speed is 45 miles an hour, also favoured by farmers who cruise country roads with piles of dead sheep in the back of their pickups, ensuring that everyone else is perpetually late for appointments. Apparently, uh, this is the optimal speed for fuel efficiency. And coincidentally, the optimal speed for annoying people who are trying to get to work. Uh, the drivers of the motorhomes rarely care about other road users because they're retired 
until they happen to require an emergency blast from a defibrillator, don't understand why other road users are in such a rush. Uh, they seem to gain particular pleasure from pulling over in scenic country spots overnight, then in the morning depositing the contents of their chemical toilet into the side of the road, uh, moving on 10 minutes before rush hour uh, so that they can begin their daily routine of holding up miles of traffic once again. The bearded pensioner will, given the opportunity, park their huge, ugly Crusader motorhome, they will have names like Crusader and Marauder, right in front of your place of business so that they can walk straight in and obscure it from public view for as long as possible while buying nothing. A distant acquaintance, who I'll call Jen, because uh, Jan rather, because that's her name, um, has a motorhome, uh, an auto-rail scout apparently, uh, which she drives so slowly that she could be overtaken by a melting glacier. Combine harvesters have been known to honk their horns when stuck behind her on country roads. I'm convinced that she's caused more lost hours of work than anything else except COVID uh, in the last 10 years. She did ask, did ask me to point out, though, that her van doesn't have a chemical toilet. That's, I'm not going to carry on because it gets a bit offensive after <laughs> Even more offensive. <laughs> you have to buy the book to find out what's so offensive. Um, I basically, I, I kept going back and forth to seven types, trying to figure out which offensive type of customer I was, because I know I'm really guilty of like wandering around and then not buying anything. But I got, I kept stopping at book-loving children, because I was a book-loving child. I'm, I mean, my brother says all he remembers was seeing the part in my hair, because I always had my face down in Buried a book. Buried in a book. Yeah. Um, so I have a lot of time for species, subspecies, book-loving children. And I was wondering, were you that kind of a child? And if so, what did you read when you were a kid? I wasn't a huge reader when I was a child. Um, I, I, don't, I think my, my dad used to read um, quite a lot, uh, and still does. Um, but there wasn't really a sort of culture of reading in our house. Um, but I do, and I remember being at, at school and being forced to read things and thinking, I, you know, I'd rather be out, you know, chasing the dog or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the the first book that I remember being like, significantly moved by was um, a book by a guy called Dennis Watkins, Dennis Watkins Pitchford, who wrote under the pseudonym of BB. Um, and he was a, a naturalist and uh, really into the outdoors and um, field sports and things. And he wrote a book called The Pool of the Black Witch, uh, which is about a boy um, fishing for, a, like, trying to... He knew this enormous trout was in this pool, mm -hmm. and he's, it's like his... The whole thing is about him trying to catch it and the, the kind of toing and froing of, of all of that. And it, it was beautiful and... Um, I, I just remember that almost everything about it sort of hit the hit the spot for me, and I think that is probably the book that really started me reading. Um, so, how about you? What were your interests as a child? Well, if it if it was printed, I read it. Um, right, back of a cornflakes packet. I did. I yeah. would always read the cereal box while I was <laughs> eating my breakfast. Um, uh, I I read and reread uh, the biography of Helen Keller over and over again. I, I don't know why. I read the Moomin Troll books um, out of the school library and then sort of forgot about them. And they, I, because I didn't own them and I, I kept growing up, 
And then I started thinking I had hallucinated the Moomintrolls. <laughs> and I was relieved, you know, sort of in my 20s to find out that no Moomintrolls were actually Did a thing. Exist. And it, I wasn't, <laughs> no drugs had been slipped into those cornflakes. Um, and I still reread Mary Poppins and Charlotte's Web regularly, almost religiously. And I still find new ways to be amazed by them both. That's funny, because I, uh, I tend not to reread things because I, I just always think it's a missed opportunity to read something new. Well, mostly, but, but those, those I mean, are the what things is that, two hours of my life to read? Yeah, that's fair enough. You know, yeah, I, I recently reread um, 1984, uh, which enormously pretentiously I actually read in 1984. <laughs> I know, it's a bit embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I was horrified by how depressing it is. It's yeah. just unrelenting. Um, but it's a, a great book. Um, so Orwell's probably the the one person I would reread. Um, but probably probably not many other authors. Yeah, you you tell a story in the book about um, a rather precocious young reader because you talk about young families in the book, mm -hmm. and there was there's a a young child who was reading To Kill a Mockingbird, which is not an outrageous book for a child to read, but he or she, I can't remember the gender of the child, was reading at a very, very young age. And you spoke to the parents and, sort of, and they were like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it was, uh, I remember it really clearly, actually. He was a boy called Oscar, um, and he was seven, and uh, he was really into Harry Potter and had, I think, read just about everything. Um, but he, you could see that he had that passion for reading, which yes, in somebody that age is really unusual. I think it's, you know, it was quite striking and Nicky was working in the shop at the time and we just got talking to the, his parents and um, uh, Nicky asked him, just sort of by way of making conversation, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, and he said, to kill a mockingbird. And um, there's some quite difficult subjects in To Kill a yeah. Mockingbird um, and Nikki, I remember Nikki looking completely astonished and looking at uh, his mother I think who just went, you know, shrugged her shoulders and said well he wanted to read it we didn't want to tell him he couldn't um, so yeah that's what he was reading so you know I wish there were more Oscars in the world yeah see that you made just made that into a beautiful lovely story and I was actually using it as the lead-in to ask you what was the most inappropriate book you read as a child and now I'm just lowering the tone right <laughs> We're, I'm rolling in the gutter here and you just made Looking that a beautiful at the stars. story <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, probably I mean I suppose there are lots of inappropriate books knocking around in the 1970s that by modern standards would just be deemed irredeemably offensive uh, but I don't really remember reading any of those but I do remember at school um, there were uh, quite a few um, erotica books being shared <laughs> and it was an all boys school so uh, yeah there was, there was quite a, a few things that if the English teacher caught you reading it I don't think they'd be too happy with you um, yeah. but speaking of English teachers I um, I met my English teacher from school uh, again last year. Um, he decided to come to Wigtown, and uh, it was a very odd experience. I hadn't seen him for 
what, 30 years. Um, Had you been a good student of his? I think so. Oddly enough, he kept all his um, notes for you know, essay marks and things, um, uh, all handwritten, and so he, he gave them to me, and I, I think I did okay. I mean, I, I wasn't a great student, but I don't think I was particularly awful either. Um, so, yeah, that was a really... But in any place, did it say potential to write several best-selling... No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> um, yeah, if he'd had space in the margins to write something, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been as flattering as that. Tell us about the occultists. Now, I have to... I, my eyesight's so bad, I kept reading that as the Oculus, and I said, how can that be a whole separate subgenre of, you know, why do they get a whole chapter? But, in fact, they are occultists. And they are quite colourful. Well, if the colour is black, then yes, they tend to Don't dress. Don't wear in, purple as well. Sometimes they wear purple. Lee, you could fit the. I could. The Although I prefer to think of this as burgundy. All oh, right. <laughs> um, yeah, they they are a kind of curious group, and um, I so I don't really see that there used to be more more of them. I think when I bought the shop, I think they're sort of slightly dying breed um but yeah they they generally tend to wear black uh and um heavy makeup and sort of as you'd imagine a typical goth i suppose um but yeah they're um well what are they looking for the satanic bible and i well, have a friend who had a copy well generally i th they're looking for generally it's something by alistair crowley mm, of course um who's the, the great beast. Uh, um, we do get quite a lot of his stuff in, actually, and it, it does still sell quite quickly. Mm. But they're also looking, I think I mentioned it in the, the book, um, they're looking, uh, have you ever seen the film The Ninth Gate? I think oh. it's got Johnny Depp in it. It's, it's a Polanski film. I, um, I did, it's about a book, isn't it? It Be is. Because I did see it recently on television, and it was one of those late nights where I was either too tired or too drunk to get up and go to bed. <laughs> and it's about a rare book, and yet it they is, never yeah. wear gloves when they hold this rare no, book. And they're no, always, like, throwing it in their backpack. They're quite cavalier about it. I was the, screaming laughter but the whole it, it's, time. I think it's a really good film. It got absolutely panned when it came out. Um, uh, and basically, Johnny Depp is this character. I think it's fairly sure it's Johnny Depp. It is. So Johnny he's Depp. trying to track down for a collector this book with which... You know, if, if you get every edition of it, I think there are like only five, um, and put it together, it gives you a sort of um, some sort of clue as to how to summon Mephistopheles and um, have you know, your every darkest wish come true. Mm. Uh, and I, that I think is what the the real occultist collectors are looking for: something that they can um, that they can communicate with Satan uh, so yeah I think Satan's here talking to us now quite frankly not in this room necessarily but speaking of Satan where's that cat he's down uh, there yeah. Captain the bookshop cat is here unfortunately he's off camera but he is a celebrity with his own Instagram account so, and all so. yeah so I um, when I was coming down uh, about it must be about an hour ago um, the cat who never follows me anywhere decided to follow me and is sitting over there. Captain, are you going to perform? No? Uh, so anyway, we do have a celebrity guest, the cat. He's having a good scratch now. Yeah. Um, 
Um, how are the occultists at all in league with the conspiracy theorists who are another subgenre in the book? And also, what's the maddest conspiracy theory you've ever been told? Um, oh, God. Uh, I, I mean, the conspiracy theorists generally um, have two interests, uh, and they, they, they overlap. Um, so usually they're obsessed with um, JFK's assassination, um, but also with Jack the Ripper. So if you ever if if I'm ever out buying and I come across three or four books about Jack the Ripper, you can almost guarantee that there'll be another half dozen about JFK, um, and of course that spills over now into the whole nine eleven thing and obviously COVID. Mm. <laughs> um, there's plenty of conspiracies about that. So, uh, but I do have a regular customer who uh, is a very nice man, but he is. He, He's interminable. Um, he, as soon as you get him started on any subject, forget it. Uh, you know, the next half hour is gone at least. Um, so my friend Robin was uh, was working in the shop one day, and I warned him. I, I saw this guy come in. I said, "Robin, don't talk to him. Just don't say anything. Whatever he says to you." Uh, and so Robin um, dutifully obliged. And uh, when it came to paying. Robin said to this guy, um, oh, you, you, you can pay contactless, if you like, which unleashed uh, <laughs> this whole sort of monologue um, for the next half hour about uh, cyber security. And uh, so that, he's not the weirdest by any stretch of the imagination, but um, he's a fairly regular, uh, he has thoughts about lots of subjects which I tend to disagree with um, but he's, he's not afraid to express them oh gosh and and another group um, that I can understand why this would provoke your uh, would pique your uh, peak um, are the people they tend to be outdoors people who like to read all the ordnance survey maps Refold them incorrectly and leave without paying for anything. Yeah, that talk that, about them for a little. That bit. they fall into the um, the bearded pensioner group, which I really apologise for being so um, making such sweeping generalisations, considering that most of my customers are <laughs> pensioners. So yeah, sorry, um, but yeah, they they tend to be uh, motorhome enthusiasts, and if you ever see the motorhome with two bikes strapped to the back. Um, that that's this category. So they tend to uh, they tend to wear lycra, um, which is quite an unforgiving material, particularly when you're uh, bending over to do up your bike clips or something. Um, so uh, yeah, they come into the shop uh, and they obviously want they're combining their motorhome trip with a cycling trip, um, and they come into the shop and. They, for the express purpose of planning their bike route, so they generally stand in the most... And if you unfold an ordnance survey map, I mm. mean, they're huge. Mm. Uh, so they tend to... Uh, quite often they put them on the floor as well so that other customers can't get past. Um, and you can see them sort of plotting their next day's route or the week's route, fold them all back up incorrectly, probably tear them a couple of times mm. and put them back on the wrong shelf. 
So yeah, they're not my my favourite types, um, yeah. and they never buy anything either. Um, possibly because they they want to keep their panniers light, but. Um, well, how much does a map weigh? Well, also they can stick it in their camper van um, or their caravan. But yeah, it's uh, they they definitely feature in the the top ten most annoying types. Okay, one of the top ten least annoying types is the local historian. You had you you talk with such love and affection of the local historians. Can you tell the audience what it is that appeals to you about them? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think they are in the sort of subgroup of uh, generally self-published authors, um, which most booksellers will tell you. You know, your heart sinks as soon as someone comes in with a pile of self-published books, normally illustrated by their granddaughter, and um, you know, with very little. Not that there's anything wrong with self-publishing. I think um, Beatrix Potter, her she first book, indeed, was yeah. self-published, yeah. and uh, oh, what's his name, Remem Remembrance of Things Past, Proust, first Swansway, I think, was self-published. Um, so yeah, some really, really great authors have self-published, but there's some really terrible ones as well. But the group within that self-published category who I who I do really admire are the local historians. Um, and they tend to be much more modest. Um, so somebody who's written you know, a children's book illustrated by their granddaughter will come in and tell you that all their friends and neighbours have told them how wonderful it is. Um, but of course that's to avoid boundary wall disputes and things. Um, <laughs> whereas uh, the self-published historian, local historian, is a much more modest person generally and they, they kind of shuffle in a little bit embarrassed and awkward and tell you about you know, a book they've written about, I don't know, a local airfield in the Second World War or something like that. But those books are generally extremely well researched, um, and there's they'll be they'll be unique in as much as nobody else. You know, they'll have interviewed people um, who've probably now died. They've gathered information that, were it not for them, would probably be lost forever. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I those are those are the self-published authors that I admire the most. They 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 are capturing valuable information that's going to be an archive, future archive. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and they are always really modest about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's something quite charming about them. They sound like they could be cousins of the, the really lovely kind of experts. They could, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I thought you were going to say cousins of the occultist, but yeah, no, 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 I don't no, think no. so. No, 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 no. Um, and another group that got your you said every bookseller has the purest love for sci-fi fans and graphic novel collectors now why is that uh i don't know i think there's just something again there's something about them that you know they do kind of conform to a stereotype um largely but again that's a, another sweeping generalization but they just have such a passion and enthusiasm um and I, you know, they nearly always buy something, and they have. Although they tend to stick within sci-fi, mm -hmm. within that that whole sort of range of sci-fi, 
they generally tend to have pretty broad tastes. Um, so they, you know, it's not just the, um, you know, Douglas Adams or whatever that they collect. They'll look for anything. And one of the interesting things I, I love about sci-fi, but I love getting hold of sci-fi collections because they always sell quickly. And um, one of the, I think one of the things I like most about them is that the cover illustrations tend to, tend to be completely mad. Um, yeah. You know, they're really, I, I think I said something in the book about how like the, the publishers must insist that the uh, illustrators spend at least a week on a massive dose of LSD before they <laughs> commit pen to paper, because a lot of them are just, they're beautiful, um, but they're not like anything else you ever see. Yeah. Uh, and they tend to go mostly straight to paperback. Um, so they're cheap and, uh, but yeah, the sci-fi fans never complain, never argue about the price of a book. Um, and just a generally quite a happy bunch. And similarly, the graphic novel? Very similar, yeah. Um, it's funny, you, know, you don't... I don't come across much in the way of graphic novels. You know, I would I would like to... You know, if, if I ever do come across them, I do tend to buy as, as you know, whatever I find. Um, but they're just quite scarce things, even mm. now that, that they've sort of crossed that threshold into... You know, from being sort of almost for cartoony children's things to actually having, you know, with Mouse particularly, I think Mouse was yeah, the one that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that pushed and that boundary. Persopolis or Persepolis? That was a Booker nominated, was it? Can't I can't recall, but that, um, that was also very mainstream, very beloved. Yeah, so I think those two have have kind of given graphic novels a much more legitimate literary credentials uh, than they than they had previously yeah yeah I I'm 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 havering here because um, the the lovely tablet setup is not feeding me questions from the audience maybe and there are no questions no, there's something oh, happening right. there but I'm just too old to I can't see at that distance even with my spectacles on I have more questions of my own but in the five minutes we have left I would have loved to can you read any of those questions? Uh, uh, do you ever worry that your curmudgeonly persona would put potential customers off? Yes. <laughs> um, okay, we'll do it that way. Yeah, uh, I I do, and I yeah I I really don't want to put customers off, and I I, I hope I'm not that curmudgeonly in real life. Um, <laughs> but I I try not to be rude to customers. What what I tend to do is um, if people are rude to me, I'll be rude back to them. Um, and I think it's it's almost like I feel like I'm holding a mirror up to people's behaviour and if people are polite and friendly, I will of course be polite and friendly back. I'm not just going to be rude for the sake of being of rude. Being rude. Um, but if someone's rude to me, I I don't really have a problem with you know, giving back as good as I've got. Yeah. So, um, should I see if I can read another one? Yeah, they're just not coming through here. Ah, okay. It's not that I can't read them on here, it's that they're not coming through on here. We can do one more. Okay. I can't read another one. Okay, let me ask you a question then. Okay, well, hang on a second. Do you still detest children as much as the first two books might suggest? No! Well, apparently, <laughs> I should hope not. <laughs> uh, no, I have one of my own now. So, um, no, uh, I, again, you know, if 
children are well-behaved, that's great. I love seeing children in the shop because you know, these are the future readers. You know, mm. they, they, These are the people that are going to keep bookshops going if, if we can survive. So, no, I don't detest children. You um, need more Oscars. You need more Oscars, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah he, was, he was utterly charming. So has writing books changed the kinds of books you like to read now? Or not? Uh, no. Yes, I think that, that's a good point. I think it probably has. Um, I tend to read more books about bookshops um, mm -hmm. and, and about books. So that's, in a way, that's a sort of educational thing for me to try and get myself a bit better informed. And in fact, uh, the book I'm about to start reading now um, is Reisman Steps. Oh, um, yes, I want to read that. In uh, fact, didn't so I, didn't sh I ask you if you had a copy you to did, sell yeah. me? You <laughs> did, Well, Charlotte Higgins um, <laughs> recommended it to me. Yeah, so Backlisted um, Podcast did a, a... You should listen to that before you read it. I think she, that was the one that Charlotte was on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's my, that's my next endeavour. But I've just read a book... Um, I, th I think, I, I suppose, in a way, I've, you know, I, I'm trying to actually read things that I probably feel I ought to read rather than want to read, and it turns out that actually they're really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've just read uh, um, Dave the Locust. Oh God, yes, Nathaniel <laughs> West is brilliant. It's a fantastic book. So yeah, I, yeah, I finished that on the train read up from Miss London. Lonely Hearts. Now. Miss Lonely Hearts. So they're very similar in some respects. Yeah, so I mean, are. he's got a fantastic sense of the surreal. Yeah. Um, so when he's going around the back lot in Hollywood and he goes from the desert to um, you know, sort of Victorian drawing room to and he's just yeah. wandering around yeah. film sets. It's he's a great writer. I, he, I, I really great. like him. Terrible, tragic death. What happened to him? Car, car crash with his wife, I think. Ter oh. Quite young, presumably. Younger than he should have been, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so now, see, this is the thing. We should have just spent the hour talking just about books. Just gossiping about books. <laughs> but, but that's not what we're here for. We're here to remind everybody that it's the seven kinds of people you find in bookshops on sale in all good bookshops and maybe a few disreputable bookshops like as mine. well. Like Sean's. <laughs> The author is Sean Bithel. We are the Wigtown Book Festival. This has been our first event of 2020. We hope that you liked it enough to buy books and to make a donation. And this is when I would ask the audience, of which there are none, to give you a round of applause and say thank you. So I'm going to do that. Thank you. Well, no, so, thank you, Lee. Thank you so much. My it's pleasure. been an absolute pleasure. It's been mine. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Sean Bithell and to the glorious Lee Randall. Do head over to our website to buy Sean's book and browse the many events we've got in store over the next 10 or so days. That's it for this episode. Phew! We can't wait to join you again tomorrow with an episode marking the 250th anniversary of the Ettrick Shepherd himself, James Hogg, with Hogg scholar Valentina Bold and authors James Robertson and Graeme McRae Burnett. Thank you so much for tuning in. We look forward to being back with you tomorrow, but until then... Take good care of yourselves. Bye-bye for now.